in three, two, one. Ready to transform your sales team? Ready to shorten your sales cycle and increase your team's close rates? Want to learn how to bring more value to your sales conversations? Want to get your new salespeople up to speed and crushing quota faster than ever before? Then you're going to enjoy my conversation with sales coach, trainer, and strategist, Megan Mishak. Well, hi, Megan. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, where are we speaking to you from today? I'm in Mexico City. Just moved here a few weeks ago after a year of travel. So just settling down a little bit. Good for you. And you were based in New York City there for a little while too, I think, weren't you? Six years. Yeah. Living that New York life, going hard in my career. So it feels good to settle down in that way as well. Good for you. I know a lot of people be jealous in getting out of the cities and with the internet now, what it is, there's no reason why we can't live where we want to live. And I know you're all about quality life and work-life balance. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. We want to get into it. You're a sales trainer, you're a coach, you're a strategist, you work on sales transformation, and you started back in you know 2016. Uh, pre-pandemic. How did you get there? First of all, give us a little background and just so the listeners, because we have entrepreneurs, we have people with side gigs, we have people who are trying to do things and just improve their careers. How'd you get here? Yeah. So I always tell people that I've been in sales my entire career. Even when I was uh, in high school, my first job was selling bathing suits and I went to college. I had to work through college. So I was a leasing agent and Honestly, after college, I had a sociology degree and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm not going to become a sociologist. So I'm done with studying. And I went into sales and I quickly got into tech sales. And honestly, I was okay. I wasn't one of those natural salespeople that just has everything figured out and seems to excel very quickly. I actually realized that I really I needed help. So I invested in my own training in Sandler sales training. And the agreement was that I would go to Sandler, bring it back to the company, teach the other salespeople. And the good news is that within the very first year I went to President's Club, I was top of the charts. I learned a lot about sales and it just all started to make sense. The bad news for my company was that I fell in love with training. So when I was moving to New York, I was interviewing for sales roles, but I actually had a company that said, your sales experience is, is great, but it's actually harder to find a sales trainer when you consider doing it full-time. So I started my career in smaller companies where I definitely know how it is to set up some of those foundations from the ground up. But for the last six years of my full-time role, I was working with companies, usually going from 70 million to that magical, mystical 100 million in revenue. And a few years ago, I experienced burnout. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Started my own company. And now I help both companies who are looking to do that same transition, as well as individuals that are looking to have more work-life balance, figure sales out, and don't want to wait 10 years to get good. And it's good that you found it at an early age too, instead of spending 30, 40 years on it, like some of us have, and yeah. finding that work-life balance. And I think that's a generational thing too. I'm a baby boomer. We just we did it all through work. Work-life balance didn't exist. There was no such thing. It was just work. And if you work harder and the harder you work, but that's not true anymore. And that's changed. And your generation has proved that. And what's nice is that can be applied to everyone. Matter of fact, you can earn more and actually work less. And we'll talk about some of that as well. Okay. You've got training, you've gone through, you're learning all about the submarine 
and the process, but then you've evolved your training. And those are good programs. Those are all good kind of off the shelf or franchise systems. Mm -hmm. But now you're bringing in and you're learning new framework and you're developing some new strategies. So you're seeing how it works in real life. Prior to the pandemic, how would you say that's changed? We had a snapshot in you know, 2019, 2020. How has the pandemic changed the way that we train, the way that we sell? Yeah, I think that there are two core shifts that I've noticed. There's a lot of shifts within those, but I think the two big trends are that one, the market has changed, especially in the last six months to a year. Oh, sure. how so? How would you say it's changed? Yeah, just here, we're in a down market. And I think that for me and a lot of sellers, people didn't realize that they were in a healthy market. And there's things like what we call like Cinderella budget, where you get a company at the end of the year and they're like, oh, we have a $4 million that we have to use or we're going to lose it. That's not happening as often. And so it's funny because for me as a trainer, I'm like, y'all, this is a huge opportunity. We were all selling really horribly. And now I just, I think that good selling is no longer an option. It's a necessity. So I think there's a huge opportunity there, but yeah, it requires a lot of awareness, a lot of transparency, a lot of vulnerability and leaders admitting, okay, this is, this something needs to change and admitting that things are not going as well as they could be. But also on the personal front, we've talked a lot about um, how different it is for these the ranks of millennials moving up through the workforce. And I do believe that deeply changed not only the market, but people's lives in terms of what they seek, how they interact. For me, I think a few big transitions are that I'm noticing is that one, even just connecting with people online is so much more common. I've never met you and we're on a podcast and you know, I have business partners that I've met and I've never met them in person. And I also notice that a lot of people, especially millennials are looking for a lot more work-life balance. They're looking for that big P purpose. And I think they're feeling really disconnected from some of the trends that they see, especially with the mistrust that COVID created in terms of these massive layoffs. We're promise that we're a family at this company. And I don't know about you, but my family doesn't lay me off when times get hard. So I no. think a lot of people are realizing that, okay, maybe I need to find my purpose elsewhere. And I feel, and I see a lot of people wanting to do sales the way that feels right to them. And actually, because of some of those shifts that I just mentioned in terms of they have more options for coaching outside of their company, they have more options in terms of investing in affordable programs that I think a lot of trainers are coming out with more one-to-one and group programs as well, because we are able to work more remotely more often as well. So I do see a lot more people investing in themselves and that investing, the, the training isn't only tactical, it is a work-life balance, holistic living, holistic working, and not defining yourself by your success, but ironically, finding a lot of success in different ways. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think you encapsulated it nicely. During the pandemic, I talked to all of our clients. A lot of them were just busy, just swamped, but they were order taking. And what happens is when the market's expanding, when the market's getting bigger, you're just getting your piece of the pie. You're just in the right place at the right time. When the market's contracting, that's when you have to get good. I actually love recessions. I tell my clients, I love recessions. When times are good, mm -hmm. nobody wants to change. Nobody, hey, we got this. We're having record sales. There's no need to improvement. Why do I need training and coaching? When times are tough, and they're hungry and they got to feed their families. And now we've got to go back and we have to help them remember through training, through good strategy, through coaching, that the opportunities are there, but now you have to go take market share. So that means if you're not getting the deal, someone else is, and you've got to get good if you want that 
checkbook to open, right? That corporate checkbook. And then again, you talked about their tenure with companies. There's no loyalty anymore. There's no, used to, in my generation, it was a 40-40 plan. You worked 40 years for an organization. You put your money away, you got your vacation time, and then you packed it in. Now the average millennial or people in the workplace, it's three to four years. Mm -hmm. And the purpose, is it really authentic? I personally like it. I call it the free agent nation. I think you should be able to come and go as you want to, and companies should work to keep you. And I think it should be your choice, not the choice of the companies. Yeah. And I love that as well, because what I find is that there is opportunity in that as well, because I think the fear, there is a lot of fear inherent in that shift where we don't have as much stability and stability is a very human need. But at the same time, there's a ton of opportunity there because yeah. there's a huge opportunity to differentiate yourself as a salesperson to move up more quickly than ever before. But there's also a lot more pressure. If you do not succeed, where sometimes in the past sink or swim environments, like they just kept you on for a while and we had much lower standards. And now I do see a lot of people having very, very short ramp periods for people. They have wild expectations. And the interesting way that I see companies trying to unpack, like trying to like make people good as quickly as possible is not the way that I learned, which is you have some time to figure it out. You have a ton of space to make mistakes. You're constantly learning, but they're trying to turn people into robots. They're trying to figure out what is consistently working in terms of consistent talk tracks and all these things. And the challenge is that is it not one size, it's not one size fits all. Yeah, I don't think and it is. Is it really working? Because our average close rates industry wide are 17%. So I'm like, okay, if you know, like the open rates for emails are horrible. And so ironically, I think that by becoming more robotic, we're actually only making pretty bad results more consistent. Yeah. And we're taking out a lot of the value of autonomy and creativity. And to your point also, even if these things work, they might work in one moment in time. And that doesn't reflect the fact that markets shift, value props shift. It doesn't bring in the fact that we need to shift our strategy constantly yeah. to address changes in the market, changes in our customers' lives, changes in the products and the services that we offer. And a lot of people struggle with that. It's a very common theme that I hear from the salespeople I work with and the sales teams that I work with is no one's using this thing or I'm being forced to use this thing and it doesn't work. And I don't understand why. And I also have so much pressure on me, but what they're telling me works is not working. And these two things just don't work together. So I definitely hear what companies are trying to do because let's be real, as a trainer, I've definitely been one of those people that's like, this works. But when I've actually implemented, I think that's something I've learned through the enablement side where a lot of trainers are only training. They've never been in an enablement role, but you have to give people a lot more autonomy and giving them that autonomy to understand not only what works, but why it works will actually build the skills that they truly need, which isn't just like being a parrot and just you know, regenerating talk tracks. Robots can do that, but it's learning how to shift your strategy, learning how to implement like 
which strategies and which moments, learning how to read the room, learning how to adjust constantly. And I think those emotional intelligence, I think you're talking about emotional intelligence. You have a framework, but you operate within a framework. There's a process. It's like Mm -hmm. with your approach to meta, there's a step one, step two, step three, and your series of micro commitments, but it definitely has changed. I always say that we have a dysfunctional buying process because we have a dysfunctional selling process. The market's changing, it changes quickly, and you've got to keep up with the trends. And we have to do it on a one-to-one basis. It's like when we start talking and in our prep work, we're talking, you find that common ground, you've got to find that interest point. And before you move into any types of solutions, and so everyone's a little different. We know there's different buying styles that are out there. There's also consensus buying. In my day, in the earlier years, we used to go see one person, they could make the decision. Today, you've got consensus. Mm -hmm. You've got to build the champion within that organization. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, it's funny, my sales style, I didn't necessarily name it. It was just like, I saw all of these trends of what people said that my style was. They kept using one word, which is collaboration and collaborative selling. And for me, it's not even for me, that puts you like one of the biggest shifts I think that's important is that realizing that you're champions, the people that you're selling to, especially those, the core users and the core people who are trying to get things approved, they're struggling with the same things that you are. They're struggling with their own lack of budget, different priorities that are shifting every single moment, having to get buy-in from all of these different people within the organization. So for me, two of the biggest mindset shifts that I work with sellers on within today's environment is one, stop selling to people and start selling with them, start enabling them to buy. And I think that a big part of that is putting yourself on the same side of the table as your client, realizing that winning in sales is not winning against your customer. And I think that is something that I could scream from the rooftops. I know it's one of the core things about selling is shifting from products and services focus to customer focus. But what I see people doing in terms of implementation is just using the word we more. And I'm like, no, like this thing goes so much deeper. And I think it's even more important because I see a lot of sellers struggling out there, but I see like a ton of buyers struggling and people don't realize that unless you're like us, most people don't sell to salespeople. If you think your job is hard, imagine being a person inside an organization trying to sell something internally and then the salesperson you're working with just sends you some resources and everything. And then like when you get them on a call, you work so hard to get everyone in the room on a call. And then the salesperson just spews all these random facts to you about it yeah. and it doesn't land. And then that person's embarrassed and they're not on your team anymore. No. So I think that the way that we use these terms, consensus selling and client-centric and human-centric selling and value-based selling, but what I found is that these things go a lot deeper than just understanding the concepts and they are shifting. So I think that we really need to figure out what does that look like in today's markets. And the challenge is that it's not only understanding the ideas and reading a book, it's deeply shifting your entire perspective and really making sure that everyone in the organization from the full go-to-market team of operations and marketing and sales and customer success are all on board with that vision and all moving in that same direction to actually help clients evaluate, make progress, build business cases, find budget, really rally all of those stakeholders. And it should be this seamless process, but it's not. This is where the creativity comes in. And like you say, I think you need a lot of emotional intelligence because you've got to be able to listen. You need to find out. I'll give you an example. I want to share with you. We have coaches. You have coaches. I have coaches too. And one of the greatest questions that I ever learned was from Dan Sullivan, the strategic coach. And this is early 90s. And it's called the R-Factor question. It's a million dollar question. 
And so as I meet with you, as I get a meeting with you as an executive or a business owner, the question I'm going to ask you is I'm going to say, Megan, thanks for the meeting. Thanks for the time. In order to make the best use of our time, I've prepared two or three questions that with your permission, I'd like to ask to make sure that we stay mm-hmm. focused and it's productive. If I ask you a question, they go, yeah, sure. And the question is, I want you to imagine three years from today. I want you to go out. So from three years from today's date, and I want you to now be looking backwards at the last three years, what needs to occur for your business professionally or you personally for you to be happy about your progress? Then shut up. Now there's only three answers to the question. Number one is, I don't know. I I don't know where where I need to be, which tells you they're not forward thinking or visionary, which means you probably can't help them. Number two, they might say none of your business, which I've only had happen twice in 25, 30 years. Both times I just folded up my books, stood up and went to shake hands. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, did I offend you? I said, no. The reason I'm asking that question is we only have one goal at our organization is to provide perfect solutions for our clients. We won't guess. Your business is far too important for us to guess. And so we're not going to guess. So our only goal is to help you close the gap between where you are today and where you want to be three years from today. And the third answer is they'll tell you. And they go, here's where I want to be. And I go, great. Now we can help you with these elements. We can use resources here to help you. And it breaks that ice, but I'm not selling a product. I haven't got to the service yet. I haven't got to what you're going to write a check for. I want to know where you're going. All right. Can I actually help you close the gap to do it? Then I only have one goal is to help you close that gap. But I've got to find out the gap between where you are and where the organization has to be. So it's a great question. Mm -hmm. And I know the power of questions, but it's that collaboration approach that you've talked about. I'm obsessed with this because one of the questions that I always teach is very similar to what I call roles and goals. And I find that a lot of people, when I first get on their calls, they start conversations very differently than that. They might use an upfront contract. It's most of the time like an agenda. Okay, this is what we're going to cover today. But by the way, why did you take the call today? What interested you? And I love that you just said what types of answers you're going to get. Because when you ask a question like that, what you're going to get is, oh, I thought this feature was really interesting, or we're trying to do this project or do this specific function. And I think this is known as like a good sales strategy, right? Like these are literally a very standard talk track and people fight me on this constantly, but I'm like, this starts the conversation from a really bad place, which is widgets and features and functions. And I use something very similar, which is roles and goals. Hey, I would love to, before we dive in, I would love to, and usually set the context, but I would love to start the introduction, just learning a little bit more about your role and some of your key goals over the next one to two years. And people fight me on it for two very specific reasons. They're like, that's one to two years. And I actually just had someone tell me why they thought that was a weird question. Cause they're like, I don't know where I want to be in two years. And I'm like, okay, that also is a challenge because you're not talking to someone in your role. You're talking to someone who is, if I love what you said, if they're in the right role, they're literally being hired to change the future of the company or at least a team over the next one to two, if not three to five years. And and it's funny because it's also one of those strategies where it's so simple. I remember one of the other coaches that I told about this and he was like, Megan, I have to admit something. I implemented that and should not be this easy. It works so well. And that's the thing is that I do think that Better selling can sometimes be really easy, sometimes be really hard. But even some of those follow-up questions in terms of, I don't know if I should be asking this because will they know? There's some of those beliefs as well that are hard when you're just reading a book and struggling to implement. So I do think that in the future, I think we're going to have to really work through some of the real fears that we have and also the best 
I'm putting in air quotes, best practices yeah, that we've been are, taught yeah. that don't work. I hear so many talk tracks. And honestly, when I go through a lot of my call coaching, so when I'm either working with a corporate client or working with the individuals, we do a lot of call coaching where we bring up moments and practices that people are using consistently. And so many times when I listen to a call, I literally tell people, wow, from standard sales practices, this is a pretty good call. It's a call that I hear probably 50 times a year, Yeah, but it doesn't work. Do you feel like it's working? And they're like, no. And I'm like, yeah, but they're like, this is what everyone's doing. And I'm like, yeah, that's why our close rates are 17% on average. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we see that a lot. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. Active Campaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Megan Mishak. Well, you're paying attention to trends. How do you keep up on it? So what are some of the general trends that you're seeing and implementing in your coaching currently? How do you identify yeah. them? Are you getting it based on the feedback of your coaches, your clients, just what you're personally experiencing? How do you identify those? Yeah. So it's funny earlier, before we started recording, you asked me, what type of projects do I work on? And yeah. I am a corporate sales coach. I primarily work with corporate, but I also do work a lot with one-to-one individuals. Usually I have about five one-to-one coaching contracts a quarter. And I think that's the best way to stay up to date because I think a lot of trainers, we don't always stay up to date in terms of what actually is going on in the worlds of the people that we work on. We were being like, well, my day and my day is a little bit more recent than some other coaches that I work with, but it is really important. So for me, even just actively being on calls with people, I think this is one of the biggest challenges that people struggle with when they work with trainers and coaches is that it's so conceptual or it's distant from their reality that it doesn't really apply. And so I think that giving people, for me as a coach, giving people very specific examples and really helping them work through things. That's also why even within a corporate environment, most of the time, I don't just say, hey, here's a standard training. I really help them work through things and customize things. And I always have office hours and coaching calls. And one of the easiest strategies for me is to get people to test it, especially if you can get the top salespeople that people really respect to test yeah. things, feedback. I think that's the thing is I never assume that something's going to work. I literally have people test it and make it better constantly. And I think that's something that we as trainers as well, and we as sales leaders need to remember is that a lot of times our ideas are really good in our heads. And then even if they are accurate and sound, realizing that people are going to struggle to implement them and having a lot of compassion for that and working through it and not just moving on that flavor of the week. Right. Let's do this. Exactly. 
Yeah. No, these mm-hmm. are tools for the toolbox. When I'm training or we're working with an organization, we tell them, we're going to give you some tools. You have some already. Great. Don't throw them out. The legacy tools, keep them. There's a time and a place. The art comes in when, what tool am I going to use in this particular situation? And each situation is uniquely different. And one of the things that was the highest value for me was learning to read the room and that awareness and understand that we all operate under triggers. We all have these emotional triggers and we know that we make our decisions logically and with reason. But at the end of the day, if I don't like you, it's not going to happen. So how do we go in there? And that comes with maturity a little bit. It comes with experience. I'm going to find commonality. We're talking, so rapport, but sometimes rapport happens at the beginning of the meeting and sometimes it happens at the end of the meeting. And I can show you books where training, hey, save your report at the end. It depends. Everyone's in a different place. So depending on where they are, and you have to be able to adapt. So a salesperson today has to really have a lot of these tools in their toolbox. Now you're in the business of sales transformation. So where does disruption come into play when we think of transforming our businesses? How do you approach disruption? Ooh, that's such a good question. I think for me, the biggest disruption is challenging assumptions. I think that's a big one. I'm sure you experience a lot with your customers. And I think that from two perspectives, I see assumptions really hindering our business. One, the assumption from a sales leadership perspective that we're doing the right things or that we know the answers. I think that honestly, for me, getting really curious with our salespeople and with our clients and testing things and also not feeling like we have to have all the answers, especially in tech. I think that sometimes we don't realize how much wanting to seem smart to our investors and wanting to feel like we have all the answers really hinders us. So I see a lot of people where they're like, okay, we know exactly what we need to do. This is what we're doing. It's working. And even just like the assumption that anything is working. Because if you look at some of those conversion rates, some of those win rates, if we're comparing ourselves to other people or our past success, is that really working that well? No. And I do think that on the sales front, again, those assumptions and some of that ego really hinders us. So for example, I do think it kind of ties in with what we were talking about earlier, which is that the way that we're selling to people has changed pretty dramatically. So I hear a lot of people saying, hey, I know that this is going to close. This is why it's easy. And then something happens, something very surprising. So for me, the best way to challenge those assumptions is twofold. One, to get really curious with what's working. Even for example, I have a lot of people where sales leaders are like, oh, this person's really good because of this. And I talk to the salesperson, they're like, no, I do something completely differently. And then on the individual sales side, I see a lot of shift in terms of not making assumptions, but actually shifting to anxiety. And I know that sounds wild, but for me, anxiety is my sales superpower. So I know that honestly, my clients do not have as much awareness of the sales process, the buying experience and everything that could go wrong there. So it's almost my job to bring up some of the things that could happen. So the things that they might not be thinking about. So for me, I always say, hey, so you know, it seems like a lot of things are, are going right. It seems like y'all are really on track and you're excited to move forward. Could I actually bring up a few things I'm a little bit worried about? A lot of things that clients struggle with at this part of the process. And they're like, what? And we bring them up. I'm like, one thing I'm a little bit worried about is that we haven't really engaged this person very much. And I have seen a lot of times that, you know, if this person has any misalignments, they can shut it down. And a lot of times when this happens, these people are brought in. And if they're brought in too late, then they feel like they're not necessarily like their voice isn't being heard. I have seen a lot of times it can be very successful if we take this approach. How do you think we should handle that? And I think that in the past, 
to your point, it was a lot easier to sell. And so we could get away with not doing these things, not doing the extra. But for me, getting really curious and almost having a little bit of anxiety and not seeing that as a I think a lot of people in sales have some fears around bringing up bad things as they're like, it's almost superstitious. If I bring this up, it's going to make it come true. If I bring up competition, they're going to look at competition. And for me, it's the opposite. No, yeah, no. So you've got to move to that whole trusted advisor concept. One thing we do when we work with clients is we get them to remove any title that they have. It says sales associate, sales executive, quit identifying with that. That's a role of HR. That's your role within the organization, not who the person wants to deal with. It should be a function of marketing in our opinion. And Mm. so I'll give you a case in point. Her name was Melissa. She worked for an engineering company in the oil and gas industry. She was 28 and she's calling on engineers and geophysicists and they do environmental services. And she said sales associate. And it was brutal. It was a men's world. This is 15, 20 years ago. It's still a man's world. It's the last bastion. (laughs) of chauvinism. It truly is. It's embarrassing. Matter of fact, it's that old, right? But just old guard, it's evolving. But as in the oil and gas industry, it's got a long way to evolve yet to catch up with the rest of the planet. So Melissa, she was intelligent. She was smart. She had a good approach. She was professional, but just not getting the respect. So I asked her, well, what is it that you do? What is it if we use you an employee, what what happens? She says, we go in and we test the samples. We then improve the quality and how we optimize the reservoir. So I said, what's truer, that you're a sales associate or you're a reservoir optimization specialist? And she goes, I'm totally that. So we changed her titles. We changed her function. We got her to start educating and work on education instead of selling a service. And man, she cleaned up and became a top performer. So people, if they're going to use your terms, collaborate with you, Mm -hmm. you've got to be bringing something to the table that they don't know. And when you're calling and you use the same old pitch or you're selling the same old stuff, they're going to shut you down. And that's why they don't want to meet with you or send me something to read or whatever. So we have to know something they don't know about their own business and be able to bring that to it, do a little bit of homework and not just crank out the numbers, quality over quantity. I love that you brought up shifting roles because even one of the things that I hear on sales calls, which I think is wildly ridiculous, is people are like, hi, I'm your account executive. I'm the person this, I'm like, they know what a salesperson is. I was going to like, but one of the things that I really work with people on is I think that their role that people are taking in a sales capacity is shifting. I think that with some of these sales trends, especially in a down market, I do think it's a little bit less of marketing, which is like evangelization and education and getting them excited and really telling the story because there's so much budget. There's so many things that they could do. There's so many exciting things that you need to excite them. I actually think that the role that salespeople need to fill in today's market is a project manager. Because I think that if you think about a project manager, it's literally helping them through the evaluation because yeah, people need to get excited, but I think more deals are shut down, not because they're like, I don't get it. I'm not excited about this, but they're like, this is so exciting. Love it. We absolutely do not have budget. And not only do we not have budget, if you do not have a complete solid plan of how we would approach this answers to every single question our technical people have in terms of what could go wrong, how are we going to implement this? Are we going to see three, five X ROI? Then this is not a done deal. So I do think that project management role, which is helping them through the assessment, asking those tough questions, helping them plan out the entire project, literally helping them get budget, not winning the deal, but helping your champion and your client scope 
helping them implement, helping them build a business case. I think that is the role that salespeople need to play today. And that's not really being supported from a go-to-market perspective. No, this is where the model we use, and this is what's been tried and true for years, is the hero's journey. I'm a big Star Wars fan, but let's go modern day, a little more modern day, Hunger Games. So you have Katniss out with her boyfriend shooting bunny rabbits. And all of a sudden, Donald Sutherland, the bad guy, is out there and he starts taking over all the different districts and causing a ruckus, just like Darth Vader did in Star Wars and the planet mm-hmm. comes with the guide. And the guide was Woody Harrelson for Katniss. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't solve her problems for her. He guides her mm-hmm. and he helps her navigate the process. He helps her run the project to your words there and solve the problem. In the Star mm-hmm. Wars metaphor, Yoda shows up. You've got Obi-Wan Kenobi coming up. They don't solve the problem. They don't go to battle for him. They're guiding them in helping them to make the right call and the decisions for themselves. Because executives today are feeling uncertain. They don't know. They don't want to make mm-hmm. mistakes. The average tenure back in just a decade ago of a CEO was 10 years. Today, it's 5.5 years. If they don't hit their numbers, everything's so short-sighted. It's so transactional that our role as salespeople is to guide them. We need to understand them and we need to help them. A great approach, a good approach that we teach clients, that, again, which is an evolution of things, is if I was calling you up, I'm not going to use tricks to try and get a meeting. Hey, do you have 20 seven seconds in order for me to get a meeting. I'm going to call you up and I'm going to go, Megan, my name is Michael Vickers. I'm executive director at Summer Learning Systems. I'm going to tell them, I'm calling to request a 20-minute executive briefing to share with you three strategies that we see impacting your business in the next 12 to 18 months. Here's my role. Here's why I'm actually calling you and schedule an executive briefing. I'm not selling anything. I'm not telling them we've got a great widget or a great mm-hmm. service. I just want to get in front of you. Now I'm going to come with you and brief you on things that we see impacting your business in the next 18 to 24 months or 12 to 18 months. So it has to be appealing to that executive unless it's solving a particular problem. But I, yeah. I want to get the briefing. At the briefing, my only job is to now sell what we would call the PI or proof in advance and understand you. So then we take them through those series of micro commitments, which are designed based on the client. Mm-hmm. I know you do the same, which is a good segue actually into what I want to talk to. There's top of the funnel, which is we're bringing in those leads. There's the bottom of the funnel. You're a specialist really on the middle of the funnel. And that was one thing that attracted me to having you as a guest. You recommend and work and specialize in the middle of the funnel. Why? Yeah, it's funny that you ask that because I know a lot of people love focusing on pipeline. I think that's where a lot of focus especially is right now because I mean, people, they're struggling with pipeline. or I'm sure as a trainer, you get this question. People always want to focus on pricing and negotiation strategies. But for me, yeah, it comes down to the fact I'm also probably biased, but I do believe that the most opportunity lies within the middle of the funnel because people always want negotiation strategies to win deals. And I'm like, deals are won and lost, not in a negotiation, but in discovery. I have so many people that they don't know why they're losing deals. And I interview them and you do a deal review for a very late stage deal. And they're about to close it in air quotes. And they don't know the goals. They don't know the pain points. And and for example, a lot of times the goal is, oh, they want this integration. Okay. An integration is just a tool. What are they trying to do through that? And they don't know. Or they were like, I think that. And I'm like, okay, so I want to pause. What do you think was? And they're like, oh, I said, I think. So that's an assumption. So I think that for me, when it comes down to where we are winning and losing deals, it is absolutely in the middle of the funnel. And the coolest part, especially for a world in a down market where we don't have as many leads, we don't have as many opportunities to win. I think this is one of the challenges in a down market is that previously companies, we just had so many prospects that we could sell to so many people that had budget. When we have fewer opportunities to win, winning is more important. 
right? Your close rate. And so the biggest thing that I have found in terms of the impact on winning is having a solid understanding of what clients are trying to achieve, what they're struggling with. And I'm not talking about the lack of your solution, the lack of functionality, but the why behind it. We call it the so what factor. Just if you can't answer me, so what five times, then you probably don't understand the client's world enough. So for me, it is where most of the teams that I'm working with are not doing as good of a job as they could. And it's the thing that has the biggest impact on the end. Most of the salespeople out here, we're living from meeting to meeting. We're just trying to get the next (laughs) meeting over and over. We're like rushing to the demo, rushing to the proposal without understanding what we're actually trying to accomplish and if we've achieved those things. So I would say you're essentially just rushing to close the lost. Yeah. And it's well said. I call it stopping for yellow lights. I'll give you an example. You're on your way to the movies. You're going to go see one of your favorite movies. Movie starts at 730. You're 20 minutes from the theater, but you're you're going to be late. You've got a reserved seat. You're going to get a good seat, but you like to watch the previews, get your popcorn, get your soda or whatever you're going to have, your candy bar. And out the door you go. And maybe you're with a partner, a spouse, and you're excited about this and you're beeline it. You're off because you're hustling now. And all of a sudden the light ahead of you turns yellow. What do we do? right? We goose it. Most people just goose it. But what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to slow or stop until it turns green. Because if we run that light, we risk getting T-boned, we risk an accident, we risk derailing it, whatever the case is. So slow and proceed until it turns green, and then we can move forward again. And to your point, what salespeople do is we get in, we get an opportunity, we've got a quota make, it's the end of the month, I've got to pay my visa, I need my commission. Your manager is also breathing down your neck because who's breathing down their neck? Everyone up the chain of command. Yeah, it moves downhill, this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And then we hit the accelerator and we end up toasting a deal because we're rushing it. And that's not necessarily in the best interest. I'll give you an example. I've got a perfect example. I call it timing. How do we time the deal? And so what I'll do, for instance, in our program, let's say somebody's looking for a program from our perspective, but let's say I want to do a deal August. I need to close this thing in the next 30, 60 days. If I hurry up, how soon are you looking? And I ask questions like this, which are just dumb questions. I'm looking at that car sales guy coming out in the lot going, hey, you're looking for a car today? And you're going, no, we're just bored. We're going to go waste the time of salespeople. So what I would ask you, if you were the VP of sales or training, yeah. and I want to close a deal in August, right? But I don't know what your time frame really is. I'm going to say this to you. I'm saying, Megan, let me ask you a question. Let's say we found the perfect program. It was absolutely ideal. It had all the attributes, all of the factors, exactly what you wanted. Were you looking to implement that sometime towards the end of Q4 or the beginning of Q1 next year? And now what I did is I took you out to the end of the year. I set an expectation that I think it's going to be end of the year or maybe first part of next year. Now, if you're actually in a hurry and you need this done this quarter, you're going to come back and bring me back and go, no, we were looking sooner than that. How much sooner than that? This summer? Really? And now we're having a conversation. You're now coming after me, but I've set the expectation. Mm -hmm. So people are either forward thinking and visionary or they're not. And so I'm going to take you out and work with that psychology and go and create that sense of urgency. Now, if you're forward thinking and you say to me, yeah, end of Q4 or beginning of Q1 of next year, I'm going to go, perfect. Our timing's great. We've got just the right amount of time. So either way, I'm proceeding in the process. It doesn't stop me, but what it does, it takes away that urgency, right? So the language, the words, the phraseology we use, I think is important too. Can I give you a a fun example as well? One practice that I see, and I'm like, ooh, a company that shall not be named that I previously worked at. When I first came into the organization, the way that they would do pricing is, I'm just going to lay it out there, had no idea about these people's timing at all. And so I think in order to save time, 
again in air quotes, they would say, hey, so this is the normal pricing. Here's how we price, no feedback or anything. And then here actually is the discount that we're giving you a very heavy discount if you're able to sign by next week. And and I'm like, okay, wait, what is actually happening? What is happening? Had no idea if the timeline was available, if they didn't know their process. And also one week to close something in today's selling environment. Are you crazy? Who has sold something in a week if you're selling enterprise? Absolutely not. And that's what clients would say. There's literally no way. Can you say desperate? Yeah. Yeah, that we would be able to, even if we desperately wanted this, we're not even there yet. We would have to get this team involved, get approvals, get this, get that. This is going to take a couple of weeks if we're absolutely everything goes smoothly ever rushing. But it's so interesting on the opposite end of the spectrum, I do believe that the urgency is a really big challenge for people. And one strategy I always tell people a quick story is as a sales trainer, what I find is that a lot of people are like, yeah, we'd love to implement training in a couple of months. And what you can actually study from psychology is that humans are not always very good at planning long-term or thinking long-term. A lot of times I remember a deal last year that I was working on where we were talking in, I think it was June last year. And they're like, okay, cool. So we actually want to implement this in January. And I was like, awesome. Great. Love that. I'm just curious. I've worked in enablement, worked in sales. And the one thing that I always remember about that time is that January is really very busy. I'm curious, are you working on anything else that we'll be launching in January? And then you see the light bulbs and they're like, oh, we're laying out a new comp plan and we're going to be doing this and that and the other. Okay. So how do you think that will actually impact this? And they're like, oh, we're probably going to be way too busy to actually be. And I was like, okay, cool. So even if you want to launch, this is actually what I would recommend in terms of what it could look like to implement. It's probably going to take a a few months to do this and do that. And also what I find is that a lot of times the team's super busy in Q4. It sounds like you're actually launching a lot in January when you're going to be working on that. And they're like, oh yeah, Q4 is going to be so busy for our team. And I'm like, oh, what I've done with some other clients is that we could actually work on this in July and June, like August, because I find a lot of people are pretty chill. There's not as much going on. The sales are a little bit slower and they're like, yeah, that sounds really good. And you could see the wheels turning. They're like, wait, so we need to close this like yesterday. And I'm like, oh, if you're ready to do that. And and you see it's their idea. And so I think that there are really good ways to help. And it's not me pushing them, pressuring them. I'm also not discounting. I'm literally like a premium price is helping clients understand everything that will be involved. And it shows exactly what we've been talking about in terms of anticipating the very challenging reality of our buyer's worlds today. It's anticipating their needs. It's anticipating the challenges that they're going to face. All of those blockers that will block them from launching or implementing or selling in buying successfully. And I think that is really, again, that project manager role. Very valuable in today's world. Last question for you. Time flies by when you're having fun. Business, business leaders and managers and entrepreneurs don't want to waste time or money. And I believe a big reason why there's often hesitation to invest in their people and their development is part of the problem. They're busy. Just like the example you gave, there's issues that pop up. In your opinion, what actions create the best results and return on investment. So if somebody's an organization, an individual wants to get an ROI on their training and their coaching, what's the best way to achieve that? That's such a good question. And it's hard one because there's so many things, but I do think for me, it's implementation and enablement. Execution. It's actually, yes, it is actually sticking with something. And it's not yelling at salespeople and only holding them accountable, putting gates in Salesforce, but it's actually getting curious and hearing what's working, what's not working. And for me, one of the best ways to do that is even when I work with a corporate company, usually what we do is we do a pilot. 
we would do a pilot with actually a very diverse group of salespeople. So top sellers that like everyone respects, everyone's, I want to do what they're doing. Good. Cause what they're doing is my program. And even for example, it also works through a lot of the objections that salespeople have. This isn't custom to our organization. This is stupid. I don't like it. It doesn't work for us. And if you actually use a small pilot with even your mid-market people are like, this only works for enterprise. If you use a very diverse group of people, you can one, anticipate some of those things. You can actually show that, hey, let's bring diverse people from the organization to show that it does work. And how can we be very compassionate and curious about the ways that it doesn't work? Because you said it earlier, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I literally teach frameworks and I usually go in and and assume that they're not going to work in every single situation. So it's figuring out what does work, how it does work, creating a lot of space for people's challenges, objections, questions, objections, all of those things, and really working through those. I'll actually leave you with the way that I handle that, even in my sales strategy, which people can steal this as well. But I actually tell people, here are the five ways that this type of project will not work and does not work. And they're like, what? And I go through and I'm like, hey, here are the common problems in terms of adoption, customization, this. I literally go through here are five reasons why my framework, no matter who you use, these are the things you should be worried about. Yeah. This is what's going to cause a failure. Exactly. And also that's my best competitive slide because then they're thinking about every other competitor that they're looking at and they're like, are so this person worried about these? You're being transparent and you mm-hmm. tell them the weakness first. It's, here's mm-hmm. where this can fail. Here's where it goes off the tracks. Exactly. And also that allows me to work in some of my competitive differentiation where this isn't going to work because if you're only looking at trainers who are only focused on training versus enablement versus the customization and the implementation, then this is what's going to happen. And they're like, we know we've had that issue before. So really... Again, that project manager is the one who's not only focused on the bright side and this is going to be so good, just rushing to get it done. But the person who is truly answer, asking those tough questions that are scary, both for you and your client. But if you're not asking, things are going to come up anyway. Yeah, Compassion and curious. Good words. Yeah. I look at it like we go in, our, our job is to create playbooks and processes. And then we're the offensive coordinators. Mm-hmm. There's a coach, the manager, the VP, whoever it is, the business leader. And our job is to monitor, film, watch the game tape, all right, and go and then constantly work at it. And that we do this to the LeBron James at the end of a game, or they don't win a championship or whatever. They're looking back. What didn't we do? Where did we fall? Yeah. And these are the best in the world. Training should always have an ROI. And I know you believe in that too. And Mm -hmm. having a good coach and having a good system and a process and work focused on continuous improvement is what really gives you the results. And we need a framework for that. And we need enablement. We need accountability. And Mm -hmm. you've addressed it all. We're going to put all your contact information in the show notes. What's the best place for listeners if they want to get hold of you? Yeah. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. You can contact me through LinkedIn. You can actually have a free, I've linked to my website where I also have a free virtual coffee for anyone who wants to geek out, has any questions about sales. I post a ton of content out there as well. So would love to connect. Yeah. And hey, you do a great job. Thanks so much, Megan, for sharing your insights with us and your strategies and your perspectives. And I think you got a great grasp on it. I've been doing a long time, but I was attracted to how you approach things and your strategies to it. Good stuff. Thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. It's like a really fun conversation. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.